You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Sam here, and I was thinking recently about this phone call that I got from my best friend, Alan, about 12 years ago. He called me and he said that he and his wife were expecting their first child and that they wanted me to be that child's godfather. And I was so happy for them, and I told him that, and I enthusiastically agreed to be this child's godfather. And then when I hung up the phone, I stared out the window for a little while, and I thought, okay, let's take stock here. Alan is, like me, about 28 years old, and he's got a house, and he's married to the love of his life, and he's about to have a kid. And I live in a very cramped one-bedroom. I am in a relationship that is in its sixth year, the last two of which we've both known. It's not going anywhere. And last night for dinner, I took some frozen White Castle cheeseburgers out of a box. I put them on a plate and microwaved them. And then... I poured half a jar of Prego spaghetti sauce over top of them. And then I ate that mess with a knife and a fork because I wanted to feel like a grown-up. I thought to myself, Alan is nailing it, and I have no idea what I'm doing. This week, I turned 40 years old. And for my whole life, my association with turning 40 is this memory I have of when my dad turned 40. And all of these people in his law office gave him birthday cards, and the cards all said the same thing. You're over the hill. One of the cards was even shaped like a tombstone, suggesting that after you turn 40, it's all downhill, and that the best parts of your life are over. And I feel like I'm only just starting to figure out who I am. And if I have accomplished anything by the age of 40, I think it's that I no longer wake up every day feeling like I did when I got that phone call from Alan, which was, I have no idea how to do this, and I'm never going to get it right. That phone call was a big turning point for me. Because somewhere in my head, I thought, God forbid it ever happens. But if there was ever any reason that Alan and his wife weren't in a position to continue being parents to their kid, the responsibility I'm taking on is that if that awful moment ever transpires, I need to be able to step up. These days, my diet situation has improved. My relationship situation has vastly improved. I still live in a very small apartment, but I also wake up most days now feeling not like I've suddenly got it figured out, but at peace with the fact that nobody's ever going to tap me on the shoulder and hand me the keys to understanding what it means to be a grown-up.
what it means to be the kind of person who could be a father or even a godfather. Rather, it's just going to be a series of moments like that phone call from Alan and like the moments in the stories I want to share with you on today's episode. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and today on the show, two very personal stories from me about two men in my life who taught me valuable lessons about what it is to be a grown-up, for better or for worse. We'll be right back. This first story is about someone I'm not related to, but that I will always feel connected to. It's a recording of a live performance I did a few years back at the Tank Theater here in New York City, and it goes like this. At the time that I met Ray, I had just moved to New York, and I had moved to New York to be an actor, and that was going terribly. It was just an absolute disaster. Uh, The extent of my theatrical experience uh, at this point in my life was originating the role of nightclub patron number three in the off-off-Broadway debut of Sex and the City, the play. And and just in case you're wondering if my role as nightclub patron number three in the off-off-Broadway debut of Sex and the City, the play, was a metaphor for my experience in the city, it was. (laughs) Because this is the entirety of the role of nightclub patron number three in Sex and the City to play. Nightclub patron number three enters exclusive nightclub. Nightclub patron number three sees beautiful woman, enticing woman. Nightclub patron number three walks up to enticing woman, attempts to speak to her. She smacks him in the face and says, what the fuck are you doing here? Get out. Which is essentially how the city of New York had treated me in my first several months of residence here. Uh, On top of all of that, I had sort of envisioned myself hanging out with a lot of artists and poets and writers, but in fact I spent most of my time with my co-workers at the Millennium Hilton, where I was employed as a bellhop. And the guy I really, really want to tell you about is Ray. Ray came in every morning, his shift started at 7 o'clock, he arrived every morning at 7.45, stinking of vodka, uh, he was one of those people who, like, it, belts are a mystery to him. It's, it's either, like, he cinched it way too far, so things are bunched awkwardly and there's part of it's hanging down, or he hasn't done it enough, so his pants are falling off his waist. Uh, he had never taken a shower. He never shaved. And Ray was the most popular employee at the Millennium Hilton. And this is why. Because Ray was funny. Everybody thought Ray was the funniest guy they'd ever met, which is amazing because Ray only knows two jokes. And I'm going to tell you both of them. (laughs) This is the first one. Uh, Ray comes up to you and he says, Hey, uh, uh, Sam, how's the mushroom? That's it. That's the joke. (laughs) What he's doing is he's asking you how things are going with your penis. He doesn't want to know the answer. 
He just thinks it's funny to ask you how things are going. And as it turns out, so does everyone else at the Millennium Hilton. This is Ray's second joke. Hey, uh, Sam, uh, look, somebody said you left it open. That's the end of that joke. <laughs> now, at first, I could not figure out with the life of me what it was. What was left open? It was like, it's your ass, bro. You left your ass open. <laughs> Which I was appreciative of, the explanation there. So, Ray didn't really treat me very well, um, and my life at the Hilton started to sort of feel like my acting career, except that it turned out over time, I realized that Ray and I had something in common which was that outside of our life at the hotel, we had nothing. Ray uh, was engaged to be married to a woman who worked at Lehman Brothers, which in those days was an excellent job. <laughs> um, and he felt extremely insecure about the fact that he was a bellhop and the fact that she had this incredibly high-paying job. And my girlfriend was still in college. She was a year behind me. So I never saw her, and I would call her on the phone, and I would say, what'd you do today? Um, and she, she said, I made three documentaries, and I played rugby, and I went to a really interesting talk on Guatemala. And she would say, what did you do today? And I would say, I was the butt of 20 homophobic jokes, and I made $8 in tips. So we didn't really have anything in common either. And though at first I thought, Jesus Christ, Ray has really let himself go, pretty soon I was starting to let myself go. I was addicted to something that my friends started referring to as the Dingman diet, which uh, should you ever find yourself depressed and low on cash, I would recommend. Uh, it goes like this. Uh, you're familiar with White Castle? You guys familiar with White Castle? I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually get White Castle cheeseburgers without going to White Castle. You can go to the store and get the frozen ones. <laughs> and you can get 20 of them for $3. So you bring those home, you heat those up in the microwave, pour a little marinara sauce on top, six pack of Coors Light, Dingman Diet. So Ray and I, it turned out, were kindred spirits. And one day we're changing in the locker room, and Ray turns to me and he kind of looks at me, and he goes, Hey, Sam. Fuck this. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Fuck this. He's like, you want to go get a beer? And I was like, okay, sure. So we walk down the street and we go to this bar and we sit in the back. And at first it's a little bit awkward. Uh, we're just kind of talking about work. But then the more beers we have, the more Ray starts opening up to me. And he's telling me about how insecure he feels around Elizabeth uh, who is his fiance, and I'm telling him how insecure I felt around Nikki, who was my girlfriend, and we're talking about how we feel like everybody else at the hotel hates us, and finally Ray looks up at me and he has this squint in his eyes, and he's like, shut the fuck up! I was like, okay. <laughs> and he goes, Sam, what's your fantasy, bro? What's the thing that you want the most in the world? And I was like, okay, Ray, I'll tell you. Have you ever been watching a movie or watching a play? And somebody on the stage, they do something, and it's really small. Maybe they just pick some lint off someone's shoulder. Or maybe they're just 
rolling a cigarette for themselves. But there's something about the way that they're doing it that feels like it encapsulates everything that you're going through also, even though your life is totally different from theirs. I want to do that. I just want my whole life to be that. And he was like, that's awesome. Do you want to know what my fantasy is? And I was like, yes, yes, tell me, tell me. He was like, okay, this is my fantasy. I'm on the number four train, and I'm sitting in the front by the conductor's car. And, and the conductor left the door open. So I go in there, and there's this girl. She's totally naked. That's my fantasy, bro. I had to admit, it was way more specific than mine. And then he goes, man, did you ever feel like you're just a fucking pretender? And I was like, every, every day. He's like, I want to tell you something. When I was younger, I was stupid. And I used to hang out with stupid people and do stupid things. And one night I'm sitting at home, I'm drinking. And my friends, they call me up. They say, hey, Ray, uh, we're going to go to this club, Club Boricua. You want to come with us? And I, I tilted my head back and I shut my eyes. And all of a sudden I saw something, Sam, and I don't know why I saw it, but I saw this newspaper headline. And it said, 26 people shot outside of Club Boricua. And I opened my eyes and I said into the phone, listen, you fucks, you can't go to Club Boricua tonight. It's going to be bad over there. And they were like, Ray, you're drunk already. We're going to Club Boricua. We'll see you later. I hung up the phone. I didn't go to Club Boricua that night. The next day, I opened the newspaper. 26 people shot outside of Club Boricua. My friends. I said, shit. I think I can see a future. And Sam, I'm, I'm having another vision right now, and it's, it's very blurry, but, but it's another newspaper headline, and I see it. It says, it says Sam is doing it with his acting. <laughs> He's doing it. I don't know what that means, bro. But I see that for you. And I did not know what to say. Because as drunk as we were, and as much as I knew that I was a pretender too, it was the first time in New York City that somebody had said something nice to me. All right, so that's where that recording ends. But I don't want to end this segment of the show here for a couple reasons. One, I think when I told that story, I was pretty naive and unevolved and insensitive about what that interaction was really about. That is not a story about Ray being nice to me. So what is that a story about? Well, I've done some research, and I have not been able to find any evidence of that horrific shooting that Ray described. But Ray clearly told me about it, whether or not it exists, for a reason. And I think that reason is that something Ray understood back then that I was still a long way from figuring out is that it's better to know that you're a pretender than to pretend that you're not. And that if you get too caught up in doing what everybody else thinks you should be doing, you're going to get hurt. 
But if you listen to your intuition and you take it one night at a time, you might wake up understanding something tomorrow that you don't understand today. After the break, a portrait of the Godfather as a young man. We'll be right back. All right, so this next piece is actually the very first piece of personal memoir that I ever wrote. And it's also the first piece of personal writing that I ever recorded. And you're going to be able to tell (laughs) when you listen to it. As you will hear, I did not really know how microphones worked when I recorded this, and I was a little intimidated by them. And I was also really nervous to be sharing something as personal as this story is. And you'll be able to hear all of that in my voice, I think. So please forgive the flutteriness and halting nature of this performance. But that apology aside, I'm sharing it with you because I feel like those qualities are a very honest representation of what the stakes of reflecting on this experience was for me. And it can be very easy as an audio maker to come up with ways to cover up those imperfections. But being imperfect is sort of what the story is all about. So I hope you will indulge this, the first audio story I ever made. Recently, my best friend from back home and his lovely wife, Lisa, did me the honor of asking if I would serve as godfather to the son that they're going to have one week from today, a young man whose name will be Liam. Besides being a very deep and humbling honor, it's also kind of hilarious, because in the unlikely and terrifying to think about event that anything were to happen to Alan and Lisa, I would end up raising the child. Now, Alan and Lisa said that they thought I would be a good choice because I share so many of their values in terms of art and music, because I wouldn't try to impose any sort of religious beliefs on the child one way or the other, and I am, I would like to think, and they would like to think, a somewhat upstanding citizen. However, there are one or two values that I will also probably end up imposing on the young man that the happy couple will be less thrilled about, and which are things about myself that I have come to accept as unfortunate, but true. Things like always having cold beer and Doritos in the house, but often having no hand soap. Knowing the meanings of baseball statistics like OPS, Warp, and Pythagorean record, but not knowing the date of my grandmother's birthday. Knowing techniques to avoid falling asleep at the wheel whilst employed as a New York City taxicab driver. And accumulating $17,000 in credit card debt. If Alan and Lisa feel that Liam's godfather should be someone who has made the mistakes that Liam should strive to avoid, then I suppose I'm the man for the job. Upon further reflection, however, it's become clear to me that being a godfather to Liam will be more than just a hilarious social experiment. Alan's an only child, and among his reasons for asking me to be godfather was, he said, that I was the closest thing he has to a brother, which makes me Liam's de facto uncle. 
Now, I never had a godfather, but I know a thing or two about uncles. I have four, three of whom are decent, upstanding members of society, and in whom I've always found much to admire over the years. Uncle Rob for his wisecracking sense of humor and endless generosity, Uncle Tom for his profound faith in the ultimate plan of a benevolent spiritual force, and Uncle Chris for his uncanny powers of craftsmanship and his desire to teach. Then there's Uncle Charles, or as my brother Jake and I have always called him, Uncle Lucky. There's a sort of legend in my family of the lost brother. My mother's mother's brother, my great uncle, ran away from home at a young age and is said to have joined the Jewish mafia. My uncle Chris tells a story of seeing a PBS special about the Jewish mob many years ago and a face appearing on the screen with unmistakable family features, a broad, rounded nose, large, dark eyes, curly brown hair and an unmistakable expression of panic. The man was identified in the PBS specialist something like Rivington Sam, and my great-uncle's name was Sam Denny. In another story about great-uncle Sam, he showed up unannounced at my great-aunt Barbara's house once, decades after his disappearance from the family, and looking in the front window of the house at Barbara and her family, he began knocking frantically at the door. Barbara, seeing him through the window as he'd approached and fearing the influence he might have on her family if he came back into her life, ran down the hallway and hid until the knocking eventually subsided and Great Uncle Sam left, never to be heard from again. So back to Uncle Lucky. Until I was 16, I wanted to be just like Uncle Lucky. He would fly into town twice a year and take Jake and I to 7-Eleven in his rental car. He'd buy us candy, and we'd eat it while he scratched away at the dozens of lottery tickets he bought, cursing under his breath. Back at home, he'd show us the jewelry that he was in town to sell. Once he showed us a ring that you could unscrew the top of and fill with powder. People used it, he explained, to store poison. The wearer would meet people who thought they could trust him for coffee. And then the wearer would sneak the poison into the coffee when they shook hands. It didn't really make sense to me at the time, but Uncle Lucky was so gregarious, mysterious, and charming, with his wide, dancing brown eyes and curly brown mane of hair, that I told my mom I wanted to be just like him when I grew up. Everyone in the family said I looked just like him. During one of Uncle Lucky's visits, there was a terrible ice storm and school was canceled. My parents had to go to work, and I was looking forward to a day at home hanging out with my uncle. But he'd locked himself in the guest room with the TV volume up as high as it would go, and he either couldn't hear or ignored me knocking on the guest room door. Disappointed, I called my friend Andrew, who lived up the street, and he said I could come over and play Battletoads. As I headed out the back door, I slipped on a patch of ice and fell roughly down the stone steps, whacking my head a few times on the way down. As I lay at the foot of the steps with sleet falling in my eyes. I could see the light from the TV screen, reflecting off the guest room window. And believing myself to be hurt much worse than I was, I called out for help, forgetting for the moment the volume of the TV. After a minute or two, I realized not only that Uncle Lucky would not be rushing downstairs to ask if I was okay, the way my parents would have, but that it was foolish of me to think he might. 
I remember realizing, at that moment, that Uncle Lucky was not someone I could rely on or trust. few years later, when I was 16, Uncle Lucky came to visit again. I was excited, as always, but my excitement was tempered by the lessons of that icy morning. When I jumped out of the car to greet him at the airport, there was panic in his wide brown eyes. No thanks, no thanks, he mumbled at me as I bounded towards him. Uncle Lucky, it's me, Sam, I said, and he just stared at me. After a moment, he grinned and gave me a hug, apologizing, but... In that moment, I could see that I was no one to him. A ghost. The ride home was strangely quiet. And when we got back, Uncle Lucky asked Jake and I to go up to our rooms. He had something to talk to our parents about. There would be no trip to 7-Eleven. There was no rental car this time. We did as he asked. And sometime around 10 o'clock... Hours later, my dad came up to apologize and explain that everything was fine. In the morning, Uncle Lucky was gone. I haven't seen Uncle Lucky since that night 11 years ago. As my mom explains it, the thing he had to talk to my parents about was borrowing $20,000. It seems the jewelry he was selling was stolen, and he owed a lot of money to the wrong people. And that day that I slipped and fell on the steps, my mom explained, he likely had the TV up loud to cover the sounds of him doing cocaine, which he'd spent eight years addicted to. He swore to my mom that he'd pay her back every nickel of the money he borrowed, but neither she or their dad, my grandfather, from whom he borrowed $60,000, ever saw a cent. When Grandpa Gilly died last year, His son wasn't even present at the funeral, or mentioned in the eulogy. He's become a ghost, and if I saw him today, I doubt I'd recognize him, even though we supposedly look so much alike. So Liam, when you get here, I want you to know that I'm going to do everything I can to be the man your parents believe I can be. But you should know that the only way I know to approach being a godfather is to try to be a good uncle. And sometimes that means being an example of how not to live. And if I ever ask you to loan me money for the love of the God I don't believe in, just say no. For my 40th birthday, my godson, who is now 12, sent me a voice memo. He loves to draw comics. And in the voice memo, he told me how much he appreciates how supportive I am of his comics and that I send him my old comics that I used to draw when I was younger and that we can always talk about them when we're together. And it made me feel so good to know that he feels like he can trust me with that part of himself. So, I haven't figured it all out yet. But, I think that's something. Family Ghosts 
is hosted, produced, written, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. Family Ghosts is made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits hear all of our episodes ad-free, and they get access to exclusive bonus content. We would not be able to make Family Ghosts without their generosity. So if you have the means, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits today. Learn more at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of Family Ghosts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.